Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 214 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Star Trek Beyond. And this will involve spoilers, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Ryan Britt. He's a staff writer at Inverse, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Vice, Den of Geek, Electric Literature, and Tor.com. His essay collection, Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths, is out now. So Ryan, welcome to the show. What's up, David? Good to be here. Then next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner. She writes about feminism, culture, and politics for medium, and is the creative force behind Bard Soap, the four-letter lather company. She spends her time regretting her art degree, thinking about Game of Thrones, and considers Star Trek her third and best parent. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is Anthony Ha. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, and a chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. And be sure to check out his recent article, Star Trek Beyond Points the 50-Year-Old Franchise Back at the Stars. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so first of all, I just want to go around and hear a bit about your background as a Star Trek fan. So let's start off with Sarah, because I mentioned in your intro that Star Trek is almost like your third parent. So tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, um, so I was raised by conservatives, and I was homeschooled. Uh, so I was watching Star Trek when it was on UPN like six hours a day at one <laughs> point. Um, and they had no idea how subversive it really was. I mean, I actually had a a uh, one of my teachers in a Christian private school that I went to, I wrote an essay and I used an example from Star Trek and he appeared behind my shoulder and started reading and he and he leaned in really close and he said, you know, you should be careful with Star Trek. Those kinds of ideas are dangerous. And that's when I knew. I mean, I was like 13 and I thought, yes, excellent. <laughs> well, and is it the case that your parents were kind of trying to control what sort of media you consumed and they thought Star Trek was innocuous because of the, they just thought it was like aliens and spaceships kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, again, they had no idea how incredibly subversive it actually was. And I was addicted to it. And I didn't really understand why until years later when I thought, you know, it's because Star Trek represented everything that I was being starved of during my upbringing. And, you know, that's why I love it so much and, you know, why I consider it my third parent. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because I met you at a rationalist group. So you really yeah. <laughs> went 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I did. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. And so how about Anthony? What's your background as a Star Trek fan? Um, yeah, I mean, I sort of started out, I think, like a lot of people my age, you know, watching Next Generation um, and then worked my way backwards to discovering the original series. Deep Space Nine. I mean, I think there was definitely a period where I was probably like watching like every Trek show that was on television. Um, and then I think in the last few years, I've kind of rediscovered it, um, both the original series, um, the old shows on Netflix. And then I think I'm kind of unusual for a Trek fan in that I really actually love a lot of the movies. I know a lot of people think the movies are sort of a step down and, and some of them certainly are, but I have, you know, an incredible amount of affection for, for a lot of the, uh, especially original cast films. Well, yes. And so what would you say, Anthony, are your like some of your favorite of the series and or the movies? Um, I would say, I mean, not, I don't think I have particularly controversial taste in this. I mean, certainly of the movies, I mean, I think Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country are probably my favorites um, uh, of the series. I mean, 
I, I think Star Trek, the, I mean, the original series probably just has that kind of primacy of being first and introducing all the different concepts. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I love Deep Space Nine. Um, I mean, I think that that might actually sort of be the one that I like watch the most. And then, I mean, I still love Next Generation, partly because that's the one that I can talk to, <laughs> um, talk about with my friends, um, <laughs> even who aren't like hardcore science fiction fans. We can still like make Darmok jokes with each other. <laughs> And then what's been your feeling overall about the recent direction of the Star Trek movies? Um, I, you know, I think a lot of my friends make fun of me because usually I'll see the Abrams movies and then I'll be really enthusiastic. And then like a day later, I'll be like, I thought about it some more. <laughs> it was not good. It was it was real bad. Um, and so I think and I, I mean, I think I sort of maybe go too far in the other direction because I mean, I think ultimately they're like good, entertaining movies. Um, I'm not crazy about them as like a direction for Star Trek. I think they're missing a lot of like the key elements, but um, I'm I, I do I'm glad I'm glad they're around and I'm glad that they're creating the opportunity for more Star Trek, which I might like more than maybe I like Star Trek Into Darkness. Hmm. Well, and then so how about Ryan? What's your background as a Star Trek fan? Yeah, kind of a, a chimera of what um, Anthony and Sarah said. Um, I was I was actually kind of forced to watch Star Trek by my parents. Like it was like a religion in my house. Like it was, but then it subverted me in ways they didn't expect. Um, and then um, I was actually an original series fan as like a seven-year-old when the next generation came out. I was like the aberrant seven-year-old who was like snobby about the next generation. Mm -hmm. Who was like, oh no, the original <laughs> series. Cause I was like primed by my parents to like be against the next generation. But then, you know, of course the next generation was my favorite new television show while it was on but why would I always preface that by saying my favorite show is the original series you know in grade school so i'm pretty um i'm pretty old school uh, my feeling about star trek is that i frequently will say i'll take a bad installment of star trek over pretty much a good version of anything else um you know somebody's like oh you really got to watch some like new show you got to watch homeland or something and I would literally rather watch an episode of Star Trek Enterprise than like a new episode of something that is uh, cool. That's how insane I am. Uh, and so I, I actually really love it. Obviously, I'm being, I'm being a little, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, but I do have like a, a really, really strong um, bias in favor of all versions of Star Trek. Well, so, so how, did it, how did it come to pass that your parents were so into Star Trek that it was almost like this religion in your house? I mean, I think that it's weird, like, because I had, like, conservative parents as well, but they weren't religious. Um, and I think that, like, it's actually odd that if you have, like, parents that were conservative in the 80s, they could be, uh, without religion, they could be liberal in other ways. And so, like, you know what I mean? Aspects of Star Trek in the 60s, we think of as being, like, extremely liberal now. Um, but in a way, they were just sort of, like, there's plenty of Republican and conservative Star Trek fans because... You know, it's not, everything is fairly, if you want something positive, Star Trek is fairly appealing. So I think that, like, there are ways that um, even my dad, who um, was a, a Republican before he died, he still loved Star Trek, and he still loved the 2009 version. It, it, because even though it's very progressive and, and, and kind of in your face with some of its politics, it still is very um, welcoming in its storytelling. And so I think that it actually has this weird ability to be um, more, um, for lack of a better word, bipartisan. That I don't know if that really answered your question. Um, my parents just like really like science fiction, and they grew up in the '60s, you know. So they like got into Star Trek when it was in syndication in the '70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, so do you do you share your dad's feelings about the new J.J. Abrams? 
Uh, no, I mean, when my father was still alive, like, I thought he liked the J.J. Abrams 2009 film more than I did. Um, and the joke that I always make about that is the advertisements for that film said, um, like, in the, some of the trailers, it actually said, not your father's Star Trek. <laughs> and, and you see the J.J. Abrams Captain Kirk, you know, who I, 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 like, I like Chris Pine, and I, and I really like this new film. Um, but uh, that is your father's Star Trek. Like, that is, uh, like, in every way. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so Sarah, you came to see uh, Star Trek Into Darkness uh, with a group of people that I was along with wearing yeah. your Starfleet uniform. Yes. <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, you know, I, it's so disappointing to wear your Starfleet uniform anywhere but New York. I mean, once you've experienced <laughs> that, I mean, I remember there were, as I was getting, or as, as I was walking toward the theater, a group of three incredibly attractive French tourists came up to me and were hugging me and taking their picture with me. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience because there's just so many people around that there are bound to be Star Trek fans among them, you know, and everybody was throwing me the, you know, Vulcan hand sign. And it, it, it was really wonderful. And I loved Into Darkness. I absolutely loved it. Wait, which era of uniform was this? I was going to ask the same question. <laughs> this was a Beverly Crusher. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, next generation, but modified sort of, uh, you know, I wore like the top half of it with like a black miniskirt and boots. <laughs> no, it's funny, Sarah, how you said that you liked Into Darkness because, you know, we saw it. It was like opening night on IMAX and something like one fifth of the crowd was wearing Starfleet uniforms and people yeah. were into it so much. And we all just had a great time. And we we're like, wow, that movie was fantastic. And yeah. it was really surprising to me then that everyone else, it seems like just hated the movie so much. I did, was that your experience as well? You know, and I've read some, some critics who sort of blase, you know, will, um, you know, as they're talking about the, the, the more recent film, will say, oh, and Into Darkness was so boring. And, and I don't, I don't understand. I, I really don't. I thought it was wonderful. And I mean, you know, Cumberbatch was completely wonderful. He's a very different kind of con, but still captured, you know, this essence of this incredible, you know, sense of where almost he was just do quietly dominating everybody else that he came in touch with in a very spooky but sexy way. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing. And then with the end, what they did with the tie-ins, with, um, you know, the, the reversal of, you know, I will always be your friend, uh, was beautiful. And, you know, I loved it. So I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the, the fans' response to it. And I don't really get the, the non-fans' response. Well, Anthony, it sounds like you didn't like Into Darkness. You want to explain your antipathy yeah. toward it? I mean, I again, I when I saw it, I really liked it, although I also remember even at the first viewing, like not liking the ending at all, because it felt very cheap to bring, you know, I mean, that I felt that I think that I mean, bringing Spock back even in the in the original series of films was not great, not necessarily it was kind of cheap. This was that cheapness, like times 10. So I thought like that really just retrospectively tainted a lot of the rest of the film for me. Um, I think that it was it's also just felt very symptomatic of how a lot of the world building just doesn't make any sense because they basically cure death at the <laughs> end of the film and you're like you know that they're never going to acknowledge or bring that up again and so that to me just sort of represented some of like the fundamental kind of dumbness of the new films yeah it but they did that in the old ones too I mean, there's a lot of dumb. <laughs> this is not to say. I mean, definitely. I yeah, think a lot, but yeah. To be, a, to be a Star yeah. Trek fan, you sometimes love the idea of Star Trek more than the the thing itself. But I felt like this was worse in a lot of ways. And and then the other things that people talk about in terms of 
I think there were like interesting questions asked in Into Darkness, but ultimately it just kind of didn't quite address them and, and instead got tied up into a lot of this continuity stuff that I'm not terribly interested in. Yeah, I mean, I, I I gotta say that like I watched a marathon of all three of these new films before seeing Beyond, and I liked Into Darkness when I saw it the day of, and as uh, as it was out, my dislike for it grew. Um, but I think that like there's so many silver bullets I feel like that I can shoot at Into Darkness, and my easiest one is that it misunderstood its source material profoundly, um, whereas like there was all this literary references in the McMire version with Khan being obsessed with Melville in the original series and then, or I'm sorry, being obsessed with uh, Milton in the original series and then, you know, Melville in The Wrath. And none of that is present. None of the, the things that make it, it, it. And when you start to find out that uh, um, one of the screenwriters of Into Darkness is like a, is like a 9-11 truther, <laughs> then it like starts to make the screenplay. I, I, re I really wanted to like it again when I saw it just, just two days ago. And it was just after watching that 2009 movie that's so upbeat, it, it's just so depressing. Um, and I think that like there's great stuff in it. It's a Star Trek film. I still like it. But um, I felt like, I felt like they just sort of, they had all this positive energy, and that movie is is about a basically about a conspiracy, and you know Star Trek's done that well, but I don't know if I was ready for that. I think that it just it didn't have the thematic uh, sort of artistic literary uh, merits of its of any of its sort of progenitors, and I think that that was sort of what. And I wouldn't say I hated it, you know what I mean? I don't hate any Star Trek movies, and it's like it's funny because I like I, I'm like yeah, Star Trek in the Dark is just not my not my favorite thing, you know, and because it, it didn't make me think about anything. Else. Well, but but among the the new villains, so the new villains in you know Nero and um, the you know the guy from the new one whose name I'm already Crawl. forgetting. Yeah, thank you, Crawl. Uh, they're both very simplistic villains. You know, it's almost like a toxic masculinity still exists in in the future, and that's very very disappointing. And you have these these villains who are you know, in many ways, very one-dimensional about revenge. They just want revenge. They see whatever happened to them as one specific person or one race's fault, and they go after them, right? But in, in Into Darkness, you really empathize with the villain for the first time, at least in the, in the new movies, in the reboots. And you really, you know, are rooting for him on a number of levels, even though you're kind of at the same time going, well, why does he have to respond this way? And so, you know, from a villain perspective, I think that Into Darkness uh, has the most complex and, and literature-like, therefore, uh, kind of an anti-hero uh, of among the reboots. Okay, wait, before we get too much into the new movie, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the lead-up to the new movie because I thought it was really interesting how low my expectations for this new movie were. And there were a bunch of things that made me have very, very low expectations for Star Trek Beyond um, that I guess I could talk about. But I'm just curious what you guys thought about that. I mean, I, I remember, Anthony, when I met you, we talked about this, and I was saying I, I really had a bad feeling about this movie. Did you sort of share those misgivings uh, going into this? I, I guess I felt like a lot of the existing marketing had not made me very excited. It was definitely like... Star Trek action movie, generic Star Trek action movie, which is not something that I was like terribly excited about. Um, I was excited, but I was excited about the creative team involved that like, I was excited that it was, you know, the first Star Trek movie not directed by a white guy. I was, um, and I, you know, I thought that the Fast and Furious movies are very dumb, but like are also like really enjoyable and have gotten progressively better. Um, I was excited that Simon Pegg was a writer, was one of the writers. So I was, I was cautiously optimistic, I would say, um, just and also, I was just ready for a change because I, you know, I just felt like 
the what they were doing with with those first two Abrams movies had kind of run its course. So I was just excited to see new people involved. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a great movie. Right. But I mean, the first trailer for this did look like Fast and the Furious 2000, you know, 3000 or something. <laughs> right. I right. Mean... Which is funny because I don't think that was necessarily wrong. I think it just turned out that that was like the best version. The movie turned out, at least to me, to be like the best version of Fast and Furious Star Trek that you could imagine. I mean, Ryan, what do you think? Did you what sort of expectations did you have going into this movie? Yeah, I guess that like I, I always find myself being a little bit of a contrarian with this. Is I, I didn't mind the trailer, and I was kind of like, <laughs> I was surprised that nobody made like a Beyond Thunderdome joke with it because it just seemed to me like, um, you know, I, my expectations were similar to Anthony's. I guess that they were actually abnormally high because I have so much respect for Simon Pegg. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody saw like him on the red carpet for The Force Awakens, but the Star Trek Beyond trailer had come out recently, and he was just sort of like, give it a chance, guys. Just the trailer's not great. Just give it a chance. And so I kind of knew that the trailer was kind of striking like this middle middle ground. And I, I don't love, you know, the, I love the, these characters. So my, my expectations were like, if they portray the characters in a way that makes me love them still, which Into Darkness accomplished, of course, including Khan. Um, uh, then I'll be happy. So I guess my expectations were there. But but I had a little bit of a glimmer of hope. Right. I mean, I really like Simon Pegg, but I, I was a little bit nervous just because it seems like directors were leaving and writers were leaving and Orsi was directing and he was writing and then he wasn't. I forget exactly. But it just seemed like there was a lot of churn in the project. And I was just afraid it was just going to, you know, be too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen sort of thing. I was really excited that Orsi was leaving because <laughs> of all that. So, yeah, the the I mean, just the fact that he wrote the last two and that, you know, the 9-11 truth or stuff. I, I don't know. But the thing about Orsi, to defend him a little bit, is that, like, I, I think that he did he did like Star Trek. And I think that I, I was confused by all that behind-the-scenes stuff. So I guess that when it settled out that it was going to be Peg and Doug Jung and Lynn directing, I was like, all right, let's give him a shot. You know what I mean? Like, that was kind of where I was at. I was just like, let's just cross our fingers. Yeah. Okay, so, Sarah, you said, so you said you didn't particularly like the villain in this movie. But what did you think just of the movie overall? I loved it. I mean, I think that, you know, I have always expected that the reboots were going to be more commercial, more fun. I mean, the entire reboot is kind of like the the Fast and the Furious uh, <laughs> treatment of Star Trek. Right. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that that means that, that it has uh, taken a, a step down or whatever was said before about how, you know, Star Trek is uh, losing all of its best qualities. I think it's just a new variety of what we know and love. And I love Star Trek enough that I am perfectly happy to have that new flavor and enjoy it for what it is and enjoy it for being fun and adventurous and delightful. And I absolutely want more. And I hope that the new TV series uh, addresses some of that and understands that, you know, real Star Trek fans want to see 20 minute scenes of the, you know, United Federation of Planets version of a, you know, long UN meeting. That's, that's what we want to see. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I hope the TV series addresses that. But I do think that, you know, I've, I've always expected these to be more on the commercial side and am able to enjoy them for being just that. Yeah. I mean, I'll say my reaction to this movie is I thought the first third of it was fantastic. I loved it. And I thought the second third was good, but overly predictable. And then I thought the third third was good, but overly predictable and also pretty silly. Um, I don't know, Anthony, what, what do you think? Of, what was your reaction along those lines? Or? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I think that the that I felt like the the first part of the movie, like, I mean, was still like fun and 
energetic, but also it felt like it was raising these interesting questions with that sort of, you know, captain's log where he's talking about the idea of, you know, in this almost meta way of Star Trek becoming a little bit too episodic and like, what does it all mean? <laughs> and so um, I liked the way they brought all that stuff up. I'm not sure that the, uh, the rest of the movie quite lived up to that because I think it just kind of, I think as soon as like the, the, the kind of main plot kicks into motion, I think there's not a lot of time to, to discuss a lot of that. But I felt like, and then it was very, yeah, a lot of the action at the end was pretty silly. I, I could not explain the engineering of that weird airlock in the center or anything other than that. But I enjoyed it. And there were parts of it that I really, really liked, like the sabotage part. And yeah. I felt like, um, and then at the, the, I guess the one part where I would disagree is I would also say that the, um, the very, very ending where they kind of, I think, brought it all together in this very kind of, I mean, not necessarily complex or surprising way, but I, I did feel like very emotional when they were kind of, you know, having the crew setting out one more, you know, again, it, it, it felt right. It felt like they kind of stuck the landing. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, Ryan, Ryan what, what did you think overall of the movie? I mean, I really liked it. I mean, like, I, I, I won't lie to you guys. I cried, you know, you know, and, 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 and in fairness, I, again, I had watched the writer of watched these other two and I cried in the other two as well. I cried, you know, in Into Darkness when Kirk dies and I cried, you know, at the beginning, I cried at the beginning of the 09 one, you know, when, when George Kirk dies, you know, so th when Spock pulled out the little picture, I think that when Anthony's saying like sticking the landing, I have to kind of really, really concur with completely. Um, I also really liked that. And I, I think that, uh, Sarah, you give me something new to think about, to be honest with you, with the villain being kind of predictable. Yeah. I suppose that I was just so at the time, I was so excited that Kirk was fighting a renegade Starfleet captain. Yeah. Um, because that was such a classic Star Trek trope that, that Kirk sort of, I guess that I saw the Idris Elba character as sort of like a mirror of Kirk of like, well, if you're out here too long and you lose your mind, then yeah. you become a monster. And I thought that would, that made the character different, but you're right that his motivations ultimately were the same, but I thought that he was, he reminded me of, you know, they have in, you know, the old episodes in you know, Doomsday Machine, they've got Decker going crazy and Captain Tracy. But I just did a big thing on this. Like there's a bunch of huge tradition of Starfleet captains losing their minds. And they're always sort of a mirror, <laughs> like in Voyager, like Janeway encounters the captain of the Equinox. And he's like made all these decisions that she could have made. And Kirk, you know, sort of um, believes in the Federation because he was born into a different time and in, in Star Trek Beyond. And so I liked that. I thought that, that that aligned with the beginning of Star Trek questioning itself. And so Kirk fighting sort of an evil version of himself, you know, and, and, and Elba is wearing the, the gold command uniform at the end. I thought it was great because it reminded me of Shatner kind of beating the crap out of like a captain that had gone too far in the old show or, or you know, um, you know, Janeway or even Cisco having to deal with kind of like rogue elements in Starfleet. Yeah. You know, I, I, I loved that and I didn't see it coming. Well, I'll, I'll say, Ryan, I mean, I thought in theory that was fantastic, but I felt like they tried to keep it a surprise. And as a result, it never really got developed, I felt, the way it should have because they couldn't have the captain, you know, the, the crawl character talk too much about who he was or what his motivations were, because that would give away the surprise. And then by the time you find it out, the movie is almost over. Yeah, yeah that was my yeah. experience as yeah. well, is that like, it, I thought theoretically, it was really interesting, but it just, it all came at the end. And, and definitely, that's one of the things I, I'm sort of frustrated by, I think, like modern blockbusters in general, and including the Star Trek films, where it's like, oh, we have to like, there have to be like twists at the end, as opposed to be like, no, here's the villain at the beginning. Here's like what he wants. And we're just going to follow that through and it's going to be interesting. It has to be, okay, we have to keep revealing things. But then it, I think in, the, in this case, it really reduced the impact. 
Yeah, and I was just conf confused about a lot of things involving that bioweapon. And then, like, maybe I'm an idiot, but why did his head get less reptilian right at the <laughs> oh, end? Oh, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But it was cool, right? <laughs> it looked cool, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all, like, I think that we, I think that you guys are right that, that it, the execution wasn't great. But I think that my what I love about Star Trek generally has to do with um, that there's, like, a platonic form of Star Trek, right, that exists somewhere that is perfect. But that whatever we get is an approximation of that, you know, and and so I always have felt like this is like I'll make excuses for original series episodes saying the exact same things I'm saying now. You know what I mean? Like Kirk in the original space scene when he meets Khan, like he bests him by beating the crap out of him with like a styrofoam two by. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's not that's not great storytelling. But the the rest of the way the, that that episode, that original episode, Space Seed plays out is wonderful, and the ideas in it are wonderful. You know. So I think that I I have I just have a weird I, I handicap Star Trek with some of its plots I guess um, when I like the um, philosophical component behind those plots but you know sometimes they get away with it better. Well, well but it, it's you know. interesting you mentioned the original series because this felt to me like I mean I, I had this I, I had a blast at this movie if you're a Star Trek fan go see it but after it was over I kind of felt like well it was it sort of felt to me like a middling um, episode of the original series with uh, like a super high budget. And without really any philosophical ideas, like you're talking about. Yeah, I guess that like I felt exactly the same way, and I just thought that that was way better than it being a middling episode of you know something else. <laughs> you know, so I guess that that's how I, I felt exactly the same way. But I just I I kind of took that as a as a positive in a way. Like I'm like, oh, it was like a big budget fully in web. That's fine. I mean, Anthony or Sarah, do you guys have any thoughts on this feeling like the original series or? I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the one way that falls down is because, like, I agree with that, like, sometimes, especially that I was true also with, like, some of the Next Generation movies, maybe the weaker original cast movies, but in this one, the budget is so big and the action scenes are so good, it almost feels like, to put it that way, is to really shortchange a lot of the ways in which it is really good and satisfying, even sure. if the ideas are, I think, yeah, not as developed as they could be. Yeah, I read something about the um, the director of you know, Justin Lin and how he uh, grew up with the series, but didn't really grow up with the movies. And and that oh. was actually mentioned in, in the article that he said, because he grew up with, you know, watching the original show uh, with his father, um, and that the original show was really to him, you know, his childhood Star Trek experience, um, that he intentionally wanted it to feel like a um, like an episode of, of Star Trek in all the best ways that that he loved about it. So yeah, I absolutely felt that. And when I read that, I was like, oh well, that that explains yeah, it. Yeah, that scans. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean the um, the Yorktown station I thought was un amazing to look at. I mean, they definitely <laughs> yeah. got their money's worth out of that. Beautiful. Thing. Really cool. And the way they could play with like perspective and orientation and gravity and all of that, where you're just like, wait, yeah, what is up again? I don't know what's going on. Oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. I loved all the stuff with Yorktown. I agree. Yeah, and also, and then the, just the um, the swarm ships just attacking and destroying the Enterprise. Uh, I just also thought that was amazing to look at. Yeah, it's one of those things when it happened, or when you're originally watching it, you think, "I can't believe they haven't tried to do this before," because it <laughs> it, it makes perf and it's and it's devastating and elegant. Like it's a it's a great way of of you know having a a ship explode that's different that, that that they've never done before and and totally devastating and you could see just how you know uh, upset everybody is that this is happening so quickly and all of a sudden the ship is lost. 
My my fiance was clutching her chest. She yeah. she, <laughs> she she joined me for for just the screening of Beyond, and she hadn't seen any of the previous previous uh, of the new Star Trek. Wow. Films, but, but but love love the original series, and we've been watching a bunch of original series. Um, before kind of like you know well because i just watch it all the time anyway but um <laughs> but uh yeah she was like clutching her chest she was like i can't believe this is happening and she hadn't seen any of the trailers so she didn't know um so that was pretty cool yeah i i saw i got to see her get like really emotional by just seeing the enterprise destroyed well and all three of those were you know the the way that they kind of and you know abram set this up by creating the alternate timeline where they could riff off of uh, the original movies uh, without necessarily directly saying that this happened again. And, you know, they started out uh, the same way they started out Star Trek Three of Kirk right. feeling like, you know, I've I've lost my, my best friend and I'm bored and I'm old or I feel old, um, which was a little bit more implausible with Chris Pine, given that he's still fairly. <laughs> but, you know, and yeah. then they had, they had the birthday thing and um, they had that scene where Kirk watches the ship, um, you know, the, the saucer just uh, going off into the distance and dying. Um, and then in the end where they reveal the, uh, the new Enterprise being built in that beautiful shot which must have taken like I, when we, my boyfriend and I were looking at each other and we were both like oh, oh my god that must have taken so long to do hmm. uh, but you know I and so that, it was yeah. really elegant because it really wasn't they weren't trying too hard but it you know it was just enough that was there for us to notice I, I had a thought about that too sir that they've that they've kind of jammed in all the things that happened to the original series cast in the films like in the same way but they're considerably younger yeah. like, well, like when the Enterprise is destroyed in Star Trek 3 in the old films it's like it's like they're looking back on their college days burning right. up, you know, <laughs> and like, and like in this, it's like, well, this is like basically all happened in a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so I, I love, I love that it, it's there. It's both like retreading the mythology of the show, but the films too, which is different because in the films, as you point out correctly, that, you know, they're so much older in the films. Yeah. So Kirk wanting to become an admiral or becoming tired. But I thought that was a nice reflection on like, sort of like contemporary culture and people getting sort of burnt out on jobs quicker now. Yeah. And I thought that was a nice reflection on that. I was like, yeah, whatever. He's, he's, he's got FOMO with the rest of the universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wants to become a vice admiral, but then he's like, oh no, now I got FOMO for being on the enterprise, you know? So, um, I, I liked all of that and I like that it mirrors it just enough. We're like, oh yeah, they blew up this, the, the enterprise. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ryan, you mentioned the, um, the scene at the beginning of Star Trek 2009 where George Kirk is killed. And I, I just, I absolutely love that whole sequence. I, like you said, yeah. I, I cry every time I watch it and I felt like, you know, this the, this attack on the Enterprise had some of that same magic for me, where it's just very dramatic and very, you know, horrifying to watch. And, and there's this genuine sense of danger. And to me, I felt like a lot of that, some of that sense, I'll say a lot of that sense of danger was lost at, at once they get on the planet, because now you're down to the key members of the crew that you know nothing bad is going to happen to. And sure. Scotty can be dangling off a cliff by his pinky and you're like, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> and well, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess that for me, I just suddenly started just like checking off all the things that I liked from Star Trek stuff that just started happening at that point. You know, like Kirk and, or Bones and Spock sort of like bitching at each other. And but having to survive together like they did in, you know, all our yesterdays or something like that um, in the original show, you know, or, you know, um, 
Kirk sort of having these schemes that make no sense and like outwitting people that he knows are trying to screw him. You know, so I just started just enjoying, you're right, the, the, the tension, I, I absolutely can't, can't debate with you on that. The tension was probably a little bit lower then, but um, the humor was higher <laughs> during those sequences, which I, I think, I read, I read these, these immense volumes recently called The 50-Year the Mission, which was this oral history of Star Trek compiled by these guys named Ed Gross and Mark Altman. And uh, they talk a lot about how essential humor is in Star Trek from various sources, and that one of the problems with Star Trek the Motion Picture was that the, that, uh, the studio and Roddenberry did not want a lot of humor in that script. Um, and then you think about the Star Trek films that work, you know, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek IV, um, there's humor. Even Star Trek First Contact has, has humor in it. And um, I think this film had a, had a tremendous amount of humor, which I think is a very important for me in, in, in creating that, f- that family feeling that Sarah was talking about. Yeah, with Star absolutely. Trek. I think that the humor, the sort of, the sort of way that, that, that the characters, and this is going to sound insane, but that the Star Trek characters are fairly realistic compared with other sort of action epic characters because they have senses of humor. And I think yeah. that that's really a, a, a distinguished, you know, it was why uh, Star Wars, you know, needed Han Solo back because it needed a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something about Star Trek that all the characters have like this like ability. Well, I think fun. it works well with the fact that it's it's supposed to be a humanist world. I mean, you know, and I think that the there's a lot of other science fiction that doesn't necessarily uh, do anything with that, but that because Star Trek is fairly hu- humanist, um, it makes sense and it fits to have them be funny to have them you know this is their life this is what society is like and you know and and having these different personalities interact in this very positive environment so well i mean so anthony what do you think about like what do you think about did you think this movie was funny and do you like the humor yeah i do i mean i i thought like um there, there were a lot of jokes that were like in jokes for the you know like when it's like oh i ripped my shirt mm-hmm. again which i yeah. just laughed i loved <laughs> But I think that also the great thing was that it felt that the humor was also, I felt like a release valve for sort of the more like in joke for like sort of the winky naughty kind of more insidery stuff. And so like that in some ways also freed up like the rest, like the bigger plot did not have to be as referential. Um, so I, that, that definitely I, I enjoyed. Um, I, I also wanted to say, I mean, just tying into some of the points about how the characters function differently in Star Trek than in other um, science fiction, especially sort of mass, you know, like movies and TV, um, is I feel like just the way, part of what I love about those scenes you were talking about where like the ships are attacked is that you really see the crew functioning as a crew. And it's not like people like getting hung up on their drama or like, you know, having like all this angst. It's all just like, okay, like we are like professional, like, you know, like explorers in space and we and you can see like that there's like not, you know, that people are dying and all this horrible stuff is happening. But at the same time, everyone knows what their job is and they're still trying to like problem solve their way through it. And yeah. I feel like that has become increasingly rare. And so that was also something that I appreciated both in Star Trek 2009 and then also in that scene in um, Beyond. I want to say actually quickly about the humor, though, is that I felt like there was even too much humor in this movie for me. I mean, particularly the part where they use the Beastie Boys to destroy the um, ships. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, loved that. <laughs> all right, well, hold on. We can, we can get to that. But I mean, I, guess, I, I feel like, like, yeah, like obviously Star Trek Four. probably if, if I go back and watch it now, is like really just ridiculous and silly and, and humorous. But when I watched it as a kid, it, it felt deadly serious and completely real to me. And I, I don't know, I, I missed that that suspension of disbelief and 
I, I was thinking after this movie, was the tone of this movie in any way substantively different from Galaxy Quest? And I'm not sure that it was. Uh, yeah, I don't, again, it's like you could, depending on how much you turn up that analysis, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that what, as a kid, it's funny, funny you mentioned being a kid, because as a kid, my favorite Star Trek episodes were like Trouble with Tribbles and A Piece of the Action, which is the <laughs> one where they become mobsters. And Star Trek Four was my favorite Star Trek movie. And then, and then whatever the new one was, you know what I mean? Because I was still... I was still in junior high when Generations came out. You know what I mean? So then that was my favorite movie. You know what I mean? Because I was... I, but so for me, it's sort of like... I, there's a quote from... Uh, I can't remember who it's from, but it's from somebody who worked on Star Trek IV and it was, it was responding to exactly what you were saying. It's like, how can... It's too funny. It's like, how can it be too funny? Um, and I think that I... You're right. There's a danger there where then you can't take it seriously. But... I don't know. I, I liked that about it. I liked like feeling like I could take a little kid to this movie. Star Trek Four was my favorite. Same, <laughs> like, same, same. same. I, I, I still find it my favorite Star Trek film, and I have watched it. I have seen it probably two hundred times. My my best friend same. and I, Anupama, <laughs> we we can quote the entire thing together. We watched it together once, and it was insane. We were just quoting the thing throughout the entire film. And the thing is, it, it's actually quite relevant. Um, you know, in, in terms of standing the test of time in climate change. And I think that it was incredibly before its time. And it still has a, you know, it, it is funny, but it's it's joyfully funny. And it, I don't know, I, I it is my favorite. And I will, I'm very excited and, and almost afraid of them if, if they're going to do anything uh, to reference. Similar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, my, my favorite um, obscure line from Star Trek Four is, not now, Madeline. Do you remember yes. that? <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, Star Trek Four was the highest grossing Star Trek film adjusted for inflation prior to the J.J. Abrams 2009 reboot. Um, you know, and it was the most popular Star Trek film. I would also argue that like humor is important for because I like the idea of Star Trek as just this very broad tent in terms of like all the different kind of styles and genres and things that it can incorporate. And so the idea that we could have one that's funnier like seems right to me after something that was like fairly serious like Into Darkness, sure. that was even in the title. Well, right. let me just say too that <laughs> that that I mean Star Trek Four maybe is is might be equally humorous as this one if I were to go back and watch it, but it also has. Like a really interesting original premise. Sure. Whereas, whereas this, maybe if this one, you know, whereas this one's like they're like a like completely evil guy wants to release a super weapon that's going to kill everybody. And I wonder if maybe I would have liked this one more if it had had the same level of humor, but there had been something else to recommend it. In addition yeah, to that, the, the the great premises like Star Trek Four like sort of do, you, you know, gesture at the great premises that exist in all the television shows, even Enterprise. Um, and you know, I, I always think of like a ran, you take a random episode of Star Trek Voyager. Um, you know, there's one called like a wink of an eye and where Voyager just rolls up on a planet that, uh, for every orbit that they are doing, it's like that planet is experiencing like centuries or something like that. So they've insinuated themselves into this culture within like a second, you know, and then they have a responsibility to that. That premise is so original. You know what I mean? Like it, it maybe not to like readers of like hardcore science fiction, but for television or film it certainly is original and star trek's got those premises coming out of its ears um you know so yeah you're right like it could if something like beyond had had a more far out science fiction premise you know 
it, it, it could have made up for maybe some of the, the goofiness and maybe the goofiness could have felt less goofy. Um, so that, that, I'd say that that's a valid, a valid point. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, you know, I mentioned in your intro that you read about feminism and just as I was reading reviews of this movie and there was a review on Bustle by Olivia Truffaut Wong and she says Star Trek Beyond is the most feminist movie in the franchise. I was just curious what you thought about that. I find that surprising, actually. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't I don't uh, I didn't find anything uh, that they did wrong in the feminism department in this film. But, you know, I mean, they have the the Jayla character who is the female badass. And she's not just, you know, uh, a badass in a sexy way. She's a badass in her own way. And she's very much her own person. And she's adorable. And she's very likable. Um, and totally steals the scenes that she's in. Um, and I hope that she actually, you know, becomes like a regular crew member or is in additional films because I absolutely fell in love with her. But I don't, I don't actually, I mean, I'll have to read the article, but, um, you know, it, it, it's almost the kind of thing that a non-Star Trek fan would say. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, like, feminism has, always, <laughs> uh, feminism has always been, uh, you know, central to Star Trek. I mean, it, in some respects, that was the one thing that is hard for me to watch the original series of because they, you know, it was kind of like the the very last add on. Um, but still, they were still doing amazing things compared to what else was going on in the 60s. You know, I mean, you had women who were holding positions of power. You had a black woman in a position of power. You had a, the first interracial kiss. So. Um, well, to, to defend this article, though, she's saying movie in the franchise. So what is a Star Trek feature film that's more feminist than Star Trek Beyond? The Voyage Home. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you yeah. have this woman who six. is... Yeah, this woman yeah. who was in the 80s who is not being respected in her field, who passionately cares about these whales and is clearly, you know, is, is one of those women who wants to live in the future. She wants to live 300 years past her time and she gets that opportunity and she, you know, jumps on to Captain Kirk and like, nope, I'm coming with you. This is happening. I don't have anything here. I have a life there. And then at the end, when Captain Kirk is waiting for his, well, I, I brought her into the future and now she's going to go on a date with me. She's kind of like, eh, we'll see. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for the ride into the future. So yeah, I, 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 I send me the article, but you know, I, I, uh, definitely. And I, I, I like that the reboots have handled the feminist things. Like they could have made Captain Kirk almost a misogynist. You know, they, they handled Kirk very well in that they made him playfully, um, kind of, you know, uh, what's the word that very much um, into women, but not in a, not in a creepy way. And that's very hard to do. And I actually, you know, I was watching that and just, uh, you know, rewatching into darkness and they keep doing that uh, in the way that they handle his interactions with women, where it still feels like the Kirk that we know, but not in a lecherous way and in a respectful way. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I think that the way they handle the character is, is an amazing I don't even know how they're doing it. it yeah. It's it, it it's it's I, I and that's true of all three of those these new films. I think they're, they I I couldn't agree more. But I do feel like there's something like also that about. I mean, I I think there's definitely nothing you know that they've sort of they have like very subtly updated the sexual politics of the original series, which which I like. But it, I think there there is also something about how they've really kind of handicapped themselves by having to go back and do this original crew again, and so like no matter sort of how progressive they can be around the edges, like the core of the story is still about 
this male captain and about like male friendship. And I think that in a way to me feels a little bit disappointing that like in that, you know, that the franchise can't, at least the movie franchise isn't sort of moving beyond that yet. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me, I had a, uh, this reminds me kind of of like conversation I had with um, Mark Gaddis, who's um, a, uh, one of the writers on uh, Sherlock and uh, uh, occasionally on Doctor Who. And I was asking him um, last year if there should be a gay James Bond. And Gaddis, you know, is gay. And uh, he said, you know, no, because that's the literary antecedent for Bond is um, <laughs> that he's not gay. And, uh, he, and but Gatta said, you know, though I have written wonderful novels about a gay super spy that they should adapt into films. And so it's, <laughs> it, so it's kind of like if you're going to do Captain Kirk, you're kind of you're kind of stuck because the antecedent, right, is that he's straight. And he's, and, and, you know, I mean, you know, so I feel like that this is the kind of thing that I really hope that the Brian Fuller, right. you know, show can accomplish in a, in, a, in a way that 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 TNG or, or Voyager or DS9 did is they don't even have to if we're if, if you're using new characters um, in in this in this fictional universe then I think that you're in really good shape to sort of um, I, I, I get away from the kind of core that you're talking about Anthony that like that is sort of a little bit a little outdated you know what I mean in the same way Bond is outdated well and Ryan I mean this leads perfectly into our, into our discussion of Simon Pegg versus George Takei right should we have made should we make Sulu gay or should we introduce a new yeah. character who's gay yeah yeah I've been following that a lot and writing about it a lot lately um and uh yeah I mean it's funny I met George Takei um and I, I was writing about all this whole kind of controversy for um Inverse where, where I'm a staff writer and um my feeling was that I felt like Peg and Lynn had their heart in the right place, and you could see why Takei was mad. So, like, my angle was sort of like that they're both right, is that there was a sort of, you know, idea of tokenism. But I thought the way that it was actually handled in the film was great, because it was just like Star Trek should be, that it's just not a big deal. Uh, and I thought that that was, and I liked that they, that they had a daughter, because then I could pretend that you know because sulu has the daughter demora sulu is is in star trek generations and so then i could say well hey maybe maybe in my head canon um sulu's always been gay and maybe he was in the other version too and maybe this is demora in this universe and so i i, I thought the way it was handled in the film was about as classy and star trekky as it could be yeah i felt like um that that I understood the like you know George Takei's objection that oh this isn't the character that I was playing, um, but actually as a fan you, you can definitely see it and imagine that oh okay this is actually probably who Sulu was but we just didn't see the side That's of him right. so it doesn't it didn't feel like it actually contradicted anything we knew about Sulu from the original series or from those movies. Yeah, and I will say that there there tends to be in in discussions. I liked what you said earlier, Sarah, about something that a non fan might say <laughs> is that there, there tends to be. I find like in the kind of list view discussions of Star Trek, of sort of a default to somebody saying like, "Well, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, intended things this way." And I think that the the tricky thing about that is that with the original series in particular is that the actors and a, a ton of different writers we're actually deciding those character biographies. And by the time you get to the films, it's almost exclusively the actors who are deciding their biographies. So, you know, for, for someone to say, oh, Roddenberry wouldn't have wanted Sulu to be gay is sort of like, well, this was never a vision of one, of one person, which is also part of why Star Trek is so great, is that it, is that it, it has always had a, a variety of a diversity of voices behind the scenes. 
Well, uh, let me just say, too, I, I was just watching something where they were saying that Gene Roddenberry actually wanted there to be gay characters in Star Trek, but it was just impossible given studio politics at the time that, you know, even just having an interracial kiss on the show caused the show to not be shown in the South. And just, you know, having gay characters on it was just not going to fly. Well, there was an, the, the episode in question is from the Next Generation era, which was written by a guy named David Gerald, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles um, on the original series. And um, if you read kind of any interview with David Gerald, you'll have like an amazing perspective on all of Star Trek. And it, there was an episode of The Next Generation where there was going to be a gay couple and it was going to comment on AIDS in a science fiction way. And Roddenberry killed it, you know, and um, kind of like when you, I, I just read all these oral history books, and when you do the paper trail, it's not really clear whose fault it is. Um, but it does seem to be a lack of bravery on everyone's part. What you have to remember about the shows in the 90s is that they weren't beholden to studios the way you think they were. Um, they were syndicated shows. You know, Voyager was on the UPN network as was Enterprise. But they could actually get away with a lot of things on The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And so when they didn't, it actually was an internal decision. Um, and that's sort of my my personal reading of, of, the, of, the, of the history of all of this, is that actually there was, the man wasn't making them not do it. They were afraid to do it. Interesting. I mean, Sarah, did you have something you wanted to say on, on this subject? Just that, you know, sexuality on Star Trek has always, they've always handled it in a, in a very unique way. I mean, when I was watching Next Generation, you know, it, it's, it's almost surprising how asexual they are most of the time, unless they are having an episode where like, okay, we're going to address Picard's sexuality, or we're going to address, you know, we're going to give Deanna Troy a sexy Deanna Troy episode. But, you know, but then they'll have these amazing, you know, that episode, I forget the title of the episode, um, the one where they meet the androgynous race. The outcast, um, yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. That was an amazing, amazing episode. And that obviously was addressing all of these issues without addressing them directly, where you didn't even realize what you had just watched until it hit you, you know, and certainly that's the kind of subversiveness that I was talking about, where I watched that as however young I was, you know, at 14 or something, 12 when that came out. And, um, you know, it primed me to think with an open mind about sexuality. And so, you know, I would rather Star Trek do that kind of thing. Um, but, be, you know, because we have a, a, you know, very PC culture where this is okay, uh, at least in the leftist world, you know, I think that if they're going to do it, then okay, adding a scene where they introduce him as gay in a very tender way, in a very tender, very small scene, um, that maybe they could do something with it in, in the next one that explores it a little bit more. I also just want to say on the subject of, of Sulu's partner, He's actually played by Doug Jung, who co-wrote the script for this, with, along with Simon Pegg. And apparently, um, John Cho wanted his husband to be Asian. And so, you know, they just, they're like, oh, Doug Jung would be great for this. And so they got him. And, <laughs> and I, just, I think, just think that's an interesting bit of trivia yeah. there. That's cool. Yeah, yeah no, I was, I was really glad to see, like, in interviews that, like, I mean, because definitely there's something that I thought about, like, in a very self-interested way when like uh, that, you know, that John Cho, when he found out, he was definitely thinking, okay, well, what does this also say about sort of Asian male sexuality? Cause that there's obviously a lot of like baggage around that too. And so um, I don't know that they, you know, yeah, it, it just felt like that a lot of thought actually went into it, which I appreciated. All right, I feel like we, we also have to mention that this movie is sort of in a way a tribute to Anton Yelchin and Leonard Niboy, who both died uh, before the film came out. 
I was just curious. I don't know. Did you guys have any anything you want to say about that, or like, how did you feel that the film handled paying tribute to those two actors? I thought that the uh, I was pretty devastated by the news of of Yelchin because um, yeah. he's such a young guy, and I thought he was so uh, charming in both those films. And that's another part of Into Darkness that is really likable. His Chekhov is very funny when he yeah. has to be the engineer in that. But I thought in this he was just as funny. I like that he got teamed up with Kirk. Um, you know, I almost felt like uh, the marketing of the film has been pretty classy and that they, they don't have a, him in a lot of the shots, which I thought was kind of nice, that it wasn't gratuitous. It hasn't been sort yeah. of leaning on, on, that, on that fact. Um, it's, it's, you know, that, that was, that's a tragedy. Um, and Nimoy, um, the scene where, where um, Quinto, Zachary Quinto's Spock is going through old Spock's uh, personal belongings and looks oh, at the God. original photo. I just yeah. was, I felt, I felt like a little kid, yeah. you know? And so I, I sort of teared up and was like, I think I may have just like said, Oh, you know, like yeah. or something <laughs> in the, in the theater. So I thought that that was handled. It was handled in a way uh, with the, with the Nimoy stuff with a lot of sentiment. And I think that that Star Trek is sentimental. And I think that that was appropriate. Um, and I thought that stuff in terms of them with, uh, uh, Yelchin was was classy. I thought they handled it in a way that was classy. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was like really a graceful way to sort of incorporate some of that like look back and and both specifically about Nimoy, but also to say you know sort of subtly nod to the fact that we're at the 50th anniversary. Let's sort of think a little bit about where we've been before, but not have that be the center of the story because I definitely think some of the rumors about what the, what the story was going to be like before and that William Shatner might be in it. Like I just felt like that was going to be so insidery and referential. So the fact that it was mostly not about that, but they could incorporate a nod to that. I mean, that really felt right to me. Well, William yeah. Shatner's face is in it. <laughs> right, that's, that's, that's. Um, he's finally got in. Oh, sorry, where, where was his face in it? Oh, when Spock looks at the photo. Oh, um, oh okay. All right. uh, yeah, which is, also, which is also a photo from Star Trek V, which is the one that Shatner directed, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, that's the one they chose. I did not realize that's where it was from. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought that was interesting because it was showing that, that young Spock was looking at a photograph of his friends in middle age. Um, so they could have easily chosen a photo from the 60s show and had it be really nostalgic, but they chose one of them in, in middle age. So as if to say, these people will matter for a long time. And something that I, yeah. I, I love about Star Trek, and this is really true of the 90s shows, is that the people that are the main characters don't have to be really, really young characters. You know, they're generally people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I think that's something about Star Trek that it's like, that's really wonderful. And this cast is obviously very young and very sexy. And that's sort of part of the appeal from, you know, as Sarah said, uh, the commercial sort of aspect of it. But I love that it was a, a photo of them kind of old and like not cool. And yeah. Spock and, and young Spock goes, yeah, these people are important being, you know, like that's what's important is that it, I, I thought it was such a, a brilliant, they, they could have chosen any picture. They chose one of them not particularly sexy or young. Well, it was also a way of saying like, this is who we're going to turn into. Right, exactly. Into. And I thought that that was, I, I just liked that. I think that I, I liked all the sort of, I, you, you, Sarah's right, you know, like, Kirk dealing with his with his age and his haggardness in this film is a little bit less believable than it was in <laughs> in, in, in you know Nick Meyer's Wrath of Khan. No, it felt he, it felt more like a quarter life crisis of just like yeah. what am I going to do? What does it all mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe this Kirk could be forty. Maybe I I doubt it. No, <laughs> uh, no, he's mid. Yeah, I mean, I think because he's meant to be the same age as Kirk in the original series at this point, right? Because he's in the in in the middle of the five year mission. I think the actor is thirty eight though. 
Yeah. I think Chris Pine is about 38. That sounds right. I think that Kirk is, I think the whole criticism of like really, really hardcore fans of the new ones is they're all actually much younger than they would have been in the original show and that all of their birthdays are wrong or something. I can't remember all of this, <laughs> um, but I know that they're all, because Kirk, I think, was supposed to be like 35 when he took command of the Enterprise in the, in the original series. Yeah, in the first one, Chekhov, it says, I'm 17. 17, <laughs> you know, right, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought, um, I almost thought, I don't know if anybody else thought this, but in, I'm, I guess they shot the scene before, but where Kirk and Bones uh, have the drink and they, they cheers the third glass. I mean, in, in the film, it's supposed to be um, his dad. But I almost felt like that that was like a, in a way, felt like Anton Yelchin. And I was like, I don't know if they wrote it that way, but it felt sort of that way to me when I was watching it. And I, I don't know. I thought that that was a tender scene. I loved that scene. Well, it wouldn't have been in time. I mean, they, they you know, it, it's only been a month since. That's true. You're absolutely right. Um, absolutely. But I, I actually thought that it was another reference to Star Trek Three because, you know, again, you have Spock dying sure. in Star Trek Two, And then in Star Trek Three, they're dealing with the loss of their friend. And then, of course, in this film, they're dealing with the loss of old Spock. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it is a nice touch, but I, yeah, I, going back to Yelchin, I, you know, as I watched this, I was just, it's like every time he was funny, I wanted to burst into tears because uh -huh. he was so, I remember walking out of the, the, the 2009 Star Trek thinking, oh my God, the person that they got to play Chekhov is perfect. He is perfect. I mean, he's just adorable and funny and just energetic. And I, you know, it's going to be really hard to replace him. Well, they're, they're not replacing him, though. Of course, that's what J.J. Abrams said. Yeah, I think that that's a good move. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, and, and also, like, in a, in a weird way, like, it, yeah, I mean, like, it would be nice to see them go in a different direction where they don't need to have a Chekhov character of any kind. You know, they could have Jayla now. Yeah. You know, I oh. mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know I, I think that that would be, I, I, like, I like that Abrams said that. I think that that's classy. Yeah. Which means that the next one's going to make us cry because they'll probably, you know, say, <laughs> yeah. figure out a way to like use old footage or something to have him have a sad death scene or something. I don't know, but I, I think I think it'll be like acknowledging the way they acknowledge Leonard Nimoy in this one. Yeah. They'll just be it'll like Chekhov went and served somewhere else, or is you know, right, yeah, right in the fields, right. yeah, coming. Yeah. Or they could do it. You know, I, I mean, I thought it was they could do it similar to also what the Fast and the Furious films did with Paul Walker. You know what I mean? Where they could just say, listen. He just went and did something else, you know, and just not make it a right. You know, he's captaining his own ship or sure. serving yeah. somewhere else or gone yeah. back to Earth or so many other things. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you guys have heard the the rumors about the next movie that George Kirk is going to come back. Yeah, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Not even a rumor; it was a press release I got in my email <laughs> <laughs> from from Skydance and Bad Robot. It's not even a rumor; it's happening. <laughs> so, what do you guys think about that? I'm excited about it. I, yeah, I thought he was such a great character, so I like that. I mean, I, I'm a little bit um, alarmed by it just because, I mean, I think that the thing I liked so much about Beyond is it felt like it wasn't about Star Trek's past. It was about, like, looking to the future. And so, like, having something that's going to be more about Kirk's past. But, I mean, potentially, this, you know, you, could, you get, like, a more char interesting character-driven film. So, uh, as with every Star Trek film, I'm cautiously optimistic, but also see signs to worry. It it also doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be, he's going to be in it a lot. You know what I mean? It, it, it could be something where there, Hemsworth is hot right now. He was really funny in Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, you know, it could be one of those things where the, 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 
Paramount and, and Bad Robot and Skydance, these production companies, are like, let's just kind of throw the hems where he's going to be in it. It could be, you know, a, a longer flashback of him on the Starship Kelvin before everything. Um, it, it, you know, you, you don't know. It, it could be a holographic uh, thing that Kirk calls up. It could be a dream sequence uh, in the mind. Uh, just from the way that they were mentioning it, it seems like that would be such a cheat if it was just some, like, yeah, brief I want thing time like that. Travel. I was assuming it was going to be time travel or a parallel totally universe or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm kind of hoping for a cheap, <laughs> a cheap explanation <laughs> that they're kind of using Hemsworth as a marketing tool because he's a very popular actor right now. Is that, that's the way I read it? Maybe that's a little cynical. Um, but I, I like the I like the character. I like the actor. Um, I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. This movie ended on such a wonderfully positive note that I am like I'm amped for the next Star Trek um, with this uh, particular. Um, production company it, it kind just of group. seems like they've made such a thing of kirk miss you know uh mourning his dad that like if they're gonna resolve that character arc they need to bring the character back and have them face to face like a star trek generations kind of thing yeah, yeah i mean in reporting on the news i did write on inverse uh chris hemsworth to bring daddy issues back to star <laughs> trek but i mean like i felt like um in a way in these new films the, the daddy issues have never really left um, which is something that's not a huge part of the original Kirk's. The, the original Kirk is more of a father in kind of a metaphoric way. Um, obviously, he's an actual father with David, but his father is not really mentioned much in the original continuity. So I'm not. It, it's a different thing now. I guess that they 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 feel it. It's necessary. Um, I mean, if 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 it's like a time travel thing and he gets to be faced with a decision of whether or not to save him or not, that seems to be the obvious route. Uh, you know, and then that, does that make him who he is? Um, that I, I could I could get into that. Wow, yeah. What you just made me think that what if he does save him and it restores like the old continuity? I don't think that's actually what's going to happen, but that would be that just like suddenly occurred to me as a possibility. Well, it, 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 I think that these sort of you know, if you think about like really big episodes like City on the Edge of Forever, where it's all about you know, if you save this person, um, you know, then it changes everything. And in this case, the death of um, the death of George Kirk creates this particular Captain Kirk, and so you could you could make a pretty a pretty interesting um, movie about multiple alternate realities uh, there that I think could be cool. But you know, again, I'm kind of holding out that he it's a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Anthony, you just said a minute ago that this you, you felt like this movie wasn't about the past or like Star Trek's past or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think it, it seemed to me that it kind of was. I was just wondering if you, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess in in just in not maybe just in the obvious way that I mean, especially again in the contrast with both of like both the Star Trek two thousand nine and um uh and and Star Trek: The Darkness is specifically about you know basically changing the continuity you know that that in your head you're already kind of running this comparison of oh these things have changed compared to the other continuity whereas this is not you know sort of based on sort of an existing story it's I mean obviously there are familiar elements. But it was like, hey, we're in space. We're having an adventure in space. And so in that sense, it, it felt to me like uh, a little bit of fresh air. But uh, just to, to me, this movie felt much more like, hey, remember how much you love Star Trek, the original series, then let's <laughs> strike out into some new territory. But, yeah. but, but it, was, it was how much you loved it in, in terms of like tone. It wasn't remember these specific elements. Let's bring those back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. Like, it's like Crawl was new and his, um, you know, uh, what his, his Anakin Skywalker, I guess, before he became, you know, the uh, Captain Edison that he was, was a new character. Um, it took place in sort of that Star Trek Enterprise continuity, which I also kind of liked. 
um, because they were able to sort of like give a shout out to that and kind of, you know, all all of that stuff for the most part. uh, I mean, there's some things we can nitpick on. I I thought it was, I liked that it was a new character. The ships were new. uh, The bad guy's ships. um, Starbase Yorktown was new. It felt new. I know, Sarah, what do you think? You're going to back me up on this one? <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't find a, I don't, I don't have a problem or I, I don't see the, the possibility of him having, you know, um, uh, of his father showing up in the next one being going backwards. I mean, ultimately Star Trek is about, is about philosophy and ethics, uh, it, you know, in, in a very science fiction way in a very classically science fiction way. And that's the only thing that is, you know, always missing in the reboots that we want to see more of. Um, but it's also a character thing. It's a character drama. And so uh, hmm. I think it's perfectly natural that they would, you know, uh, not, they wouldn't introduce this great character and then just leave him, leave him dead when they do so much with time travel in the Star Trek universe. So, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. And I don't see it as them going backward as long as, you know, they keep trying to put as much of that philosophical Star Trek into it as they can and well, still have it be commercial. Yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing I'll say for it is I didn't see it coming in terms yeah. of that announcement. I'm like, okay, weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at that, you know. It was very intriguing. It was yeah. like, I wonder what they're going to do with this. And there are, you know, an endless, endless things that they could do with that, given that they can really do anything at this point. Uh, well, I mean, Ryan, you mentioned that this is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. So I'm just curious to get you guys' take on just what do you think is the state of Star Trek as we move into 50 years of Star Trek? I, I mean, I think it's better than I thought it was. And if you would ask me this in, in 2014, I would have said, you know, I don't know. And, and you know, I think that mostly like, I, you know, and I, and I, you know, it's so funny that Star Trek and the Darkness can get me heated, but it's not that I disliked it. I was just so disappointed. Um, and that, and that when I wasn't going to have any new Star Trek for so long, um, it, it's like, I think the way that, it, but it, but it was good. You know, it was funny. Bones was funny in it. Um, and all those things. So, but if you'd asked me that in 2014, I would have said, I don't know. I feel like it needs to take a break, but now I think it's really good. You know, this film was really fun. Um, it was really positive. And again, I, 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 I kind of, I, I know that I'm overstating this point maybe a little bit, or maybe I feel like I'm overstating this point. But it was the kind of film I feel like that anybody could go to of any age and enjoy. And I think that that's kind of important for some of these big sci-fi blockbusters, um, that they're not overtly, like, um, disgustingly violent. And there was something about the violence in this that was a little bit cartoony and reminded me of the 60s show or Next Generation a bit. And that I think that the state of Star Trek is like it doesn't need to be really negative. It doesn't need to be really, like, it doesn't need to be you know, Game of Thrones in space or something <laughs> like that. Like, and I think that with the new show with Brian Fuller doing it, who's written for Star Trek, uh, and Nick Meyer on that writing team who, you know, wrote and directed Star Trek two and, you know, wrote parts of four and directed Star Trek six, uh, and who loves Sherlock Holmes. Um, I think, uh, you've got a really amazing writing team. Um, and the things I'm hearing out of that, um, just talking with Meyer briefly are really excite me very much. And, um, and with if Simon Pegg is allowed to write another one of these films, I think the state of it is um, it, way better than a Star Trek fan could have imagined um, five years ago or even ten years ago. Um, and I think that because there's a lot of um, there's a good mixture of old uh, with new, um, and I think that that is, um, is is really exciting. Cool. How about Anthony? What do you think about the current state of Star Trek? 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think fundamentally I agree. I, I feel good about where it is. Um, I do think that there was this moment, especially maybe in 2009 when the movie had just come out, and it was like, oh, man, like, not only is Star Trek back, but it's, like, mainstream. There's going to be, like, you know, it's going to it's like, this is, like, gonna, it's going to be, like, the next Star Wars, and I think, like, it hasn't quite achieved that level of, like, cultural prominence, and I'm not sure it needs to. I mean, I think in some ways, like, Star Trek is this incredibly geeky thing, and I think that's you know, great. Um, and, and I'm, I'm definitely very excited. I mean, I, again, I, I really like this movie and I felt like it again, even though I know David, you disagree. I liked having a movie that felt a little bit more forward facing than the past ones, a little bit more future facing. And I'm excited about the new show because I do think that one of the things that I, I've, I've haven't loved just having this fran- film franchise being all the Star Trek is that it's, it basically sort of implicitly said that Star Trek was really specifically about these characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that Star Trek is, is about this whole universe. And so, having the show open that up again is something I'm very excited about. Yeah, cool. And Sarah? I am very happy with how it is now. I, uh, like I said, I think that the reboots are, you know, great for what they are. They're entertaining. And I would have much, you know, I, I'm much happier that they decided to make them commercial, but make them good. They could have made mm. them commercial and then have them be bad. And then it would be <laughs> like, oh God, <laughs> painful, painful. <laughs> but I think it, a lot of it depends on, you know, what they do with the TV show and, I would gladly pay a monthly uh, subscription fee to, you know, whatever Star Trek that they can create. And my fear is that they will make a Star Trek that's like the new Supergirl that, you know, felt like it was created in a, you know, focus groups lab. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that they uh, understand and, and respect enough of what makes Star Trek completely unique from a lot of other science fiction, namely the the humanism and you know, the, the sense of optimism, uh, with dealing with, you know, especially with everything so horrible in the world right now, you know, we really need that, that classic Star Trek. And I would love to see that, uh, come back in, in the new TV show. It's interesting because, um, yeah, like the last thing I had heard was that you were going to have to pay a monthly fee to get CBS access, whatever they were calling it. But then I saw that you were going to be able to get it on Netflix, but then I saw you were, you were going to be able to get it on Netflix in every country basically in the world except the United States and Canada where you were going to have to pay. <laughs> so I don't know. Ryan, have you followed that stuff? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think it'll shake out. I mean, like I was, comp- it was really hard to watch uh, the sci-fi channel run of Battlestar Galactica when it was on, but I managed. Um, you know what I mean? That was one of my favorite shows. I remember how hard it was in the 90s to watch Babylon 5. You know, I mean, managed... like Captain Kirk is driving around. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. Ridgewood Queen. Sorry, guys. I got Kirk at my doorstep. <laughs> Chris Pine's coming over for some chili. Um, but uh, you want to start hearing Beastie Boys in the background. Yeah. But no, I mean, I was able to watch all these sci-fi. It's always been a pain in the ass to find my favorite sci-fi show. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm not uh, I'm not super worried about the distribution. I think it's going to be fine. All right, cool. So does anyone have any anything else they want to say before we wrap this up? No, you guys are like, you guys have actually made me rethink some of my Star Trek positions, all three of you. <laughs> so I, I feel I feel good about that. I've been like living and breathing this. So I, I feel I feel pretty excited. Um, yeah, David, I expect you to watch the voyage home in the next couple of days. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I mean, know. I, that's always been my favorite Star Trek movie. So I mean, you know, I'm totally <laughs> with you that it's great. 
Okay. I did a, I did a big Easter egg list on inverse today. And so if you guys can go on that and see if I got anything wrong, if I missed anything. <laughs> that would be great. I did like I, I have like the green hand that Scotty mentions and like all the different episodes that are mentioned and all the stuff from Star Trek Enterprise that is specifically mentioned. Um so I thought yeah, I well, got, could you could you give us Ryan like say like the top three or something? A little well, like jokes this, in it? Scotty mentions the green hand in space, which is from an episode called uh um, who mourns for Adonis, which is uh, where Apollo, the god, is living on a planet and stops the Enterprise. And what I thought was so interesting about that is that footage from that episode actually appeared on a television in the new X-Men movie this summer. Um, so I was like, wow, people really love that episode of Star Trek. Um, the organization that uh, that um, Captain Edison fought with, the Mako unit, was a, um, a, a military unit that showed up on the third season of Enterprise the TV show with Scott Bakula. Um, so that was like a direct reference there. Uh, and that was like a huge controversial move on that show. Um, yeah. And I guess that um, the other one would be that the uh, date at the beginning, Kirk says it's the 966th day. And so that would be 966, which would be September of 1966, which is when the original series debuted. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. That they were sort of like that, that they, they snuck that in. Um, Simon Pegg, uh, show spaced, uh, skip to the end was a show, a joke from that show that Kirk gets to say in this film, skip to the end. Hmm. Uh, I thought that was great. Yeah. There's, but, but I'm sure there are, there are nerdy references that I missed, particularly from like Star Trek four. Hmm. Well, and say again, Ryan, how people can find your complete list. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I just go to inverse.com, um, and just look up me uh, star trek beyond there's a star trek beyond tag on inverse.com we've been covering it uh pretty hardcore uh yeah all right cool so yeah so i think we're going to wrap things up there so we've been speaking with ryan Britt, sarah lynn mishner and anthony ha so guys thank you so much for joining us yeah it was great fun yeah thanks a lot thanks guys and that was our panel so big thanks again to ryan Britt, sarah lynn mishner and anthony ha for joining us on the show and remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.